going to be in Philippians uh, chapter 3, verse 12 through chapter 4, verse 1. Um, if you need a Bible, we've got a few up here on the table to my left and your right, so you're free to feel free to help yourself to one of those. And if you need a Bible, you can take that home uh, as a gift from us to you. We want you to have a copy of God's Word at your house. One of the things I think we often ask ourselves in different areas of life and at different times in life is a question, we may not give voice to it, but we're always asking, we're always trying to assess how good is good enough, right? Like we're always somehow, whether we, we give voice to it or not, we're always trying to figure out how good is good enough. And I think if we were honest, if, we, if I told you to, tonight, like when you leave here, I'm going to pray for you, and for the next week, for the next year, you're going to be able to give 99% effort in everything you do. Most of us will be like, man, that's awesome. Like, I will crush my life over the next year, right? But this, I want to give you some numbers on what it would look like in certain areas if we were all just okay with 99% being good enough. So here are some uh, numbers for you. If we were okay with 99% being good enough, then we would have no phone service for 15 minutes each day. If we were okay with 99% being good enough, there would be 1.7 million pieces of first-class mail lost each day. Do not insert a joke about the Postal Service here. If we thought 99% was good enough, over the course of the year, 35,000 newborn babies would be dropped by doctors or nurses. If we thought 99% was good enough, 200,000 people would get the wrong drug prescription each day year if we thought 99 percent was good enough we would have to deal with unsafe drinking water three days a year if 99 percent was good enough we would have three misspelled words on the average page of type and if we thought 99 percent was good enough two million people would die from food poisoning each year i for one in reading there's nowhere in there that i'm like okay i could cheer that on like hey it's only thirty-five thousand babies that got dropped maybe yours won't be the one i don't know like there's nowhere in there that you kind of get on board and you're like yeah i could cheer that on like i'm good maybe 15 minutes without phone service a day would be a welcome uh breather but for the most part you don't look at that and go man i'm glad we just settled for 99 percent like we want those numbers to be zero. We want them in these particular areas and other areas, you want to hit 100% every time. But I think if we're honest, we often spend a lot of our walk with Christ looking around trying to figure out how good is good enough. And if we're really honest underneath that question, we're far too easily pleased with something way less than 99% as it comes to how we pursue living for Christ and living in light of the gospel in our own life. And so tonight, when we look at Philippians 3, 12 through 4, 1, what we see is that Paul is encouraging the Philippians and us that we must not be willing to settle for where we are in our walk with Christ. We can never allow ourselves to look around and think, I've arrived. We must commit ourselves not to perfection because Paul himself preaches and teaches clearly perfection this side of eternity is not attainable. But we must be willing, and you're going to see it in Paul's language tonight, we must be willing to commit to pushing ourselves to become all that we were meant to be in Christ. Let us pray.
Father, we confess. We confess we, we could not get 1% of righteousness and holiness right in and of ourselves. Father, and even if we could hit 99% in our own effort and in our own strength as it pertains to righteousness and obedience, the 1% that we are lacking is so great, is so vast, is so large. There would be no hope for us. And so, Father, you provided what we couldn't provide for ourselves when you sent Christ to live the life that we should have lived, to die the death that we deserved in our place, satisfying your wrath and assuring us the opportunity to be adopted into your family as sons and daughters with a righteousness that's not our own, but a righteousness that comes from Christ himself. And so, Father, we gather tonight to celebrate, to celebrate that you have provided 100% of what we need. And so as we consider what it looks like to push ourselves to demand a level of gospel conformity from ourselves, we do so with the clear understanding that your requirements have already been met in Christ. But we feel the weight of the responsibility of being obedient and faithful sons and daughters. Would you help us, would you help us to wrestle with this tension tonight? In Christ's name. Amen. Paul opens, I'm going to read you 12 through 16. He says, not that I've already obtained this or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way, and if in anything you think otherwise, God will, will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. If you were to back up and read verses 7 through 11 of chapter 3, Paul lays out in those five verses a brief yet very dense theological treatise about what it is to be found in Christ. Paul renounces everything that he had gained in his adherence to the law, and he confesses that what he needs is a righteousness not his own, a righteousness from some outside source to be applied to his life, to have any chance of being accepted by God. And so when you go back and you read 3, 7 through 11, if you're anything like me, your natural thought in verse 12 is that Paul is going to begin to lecture the Philippians on how to rise to his level. Paul's going to begin to lay into them about how shaky and how weak maybe their faith was. But Paul doesn't do that. Paul, in verse 12, humbly and pastorally points the finger at himself he raises the mirror of all the implications of the gospel for the life of a believer and instead of looking at the philippians and saying you're not measuring up paul says don't worry i don't measure up everything i've just written to you even i'm not fully grasping even i'm not fully living into i'm not seeing it fully applied in my own life that's what he means when he says i've not already obtained this and i'm not already perfect but I press on to make it my own. Paul knew the frustration 
of knowing and understanding what God required of us as sons and daughters, and then dealing with all the setbacks and all the frustrations that come with living in a sinful and fallen world around you, making that difficult, and also dealing with the indwelling remnants of sin that makes obedience to Christ so hard. It made it hard for Paul and the Philippians, and it makes it hard for us. And so Paul doesn't pile on and begin to conduct himself in such a way that he wants the Philippians to look up to this level that Paul has ascended to where he's now dispensing this theological wisdom down to them. What Paul wants them to do is to look beside them because Paul is directly beside them in the trenches working to fight to understand what it means to live out the full implications of the gospel in his life. We so often think when we read Paul's letters and we think about Paul's life, man, Paul had it down cold. And Paul would be the first to tell you, no, I don't. And so he's encouraging the Philippian believers that, hey, you're not alone. I'm not necessarily ahead of you in ascending the mountain of faith. I'm right beside you struggling to figure out where I put my hand and where I put my foot next to continue this upward movement in the gospel. Now imagine you were the Philippians and you get this letter and you hear the first part of it read and then you get to this part. How encouraging is it to hear Paul say, I'm in it with you. You're a Philippian believer, you hear that and you begin to go, hey, Paul struggles with this. Paul knows the frustration of being a believer living in this world. Paul's not perfect yet. We got hope, man. We're going to make it. And I hope when you read that and you, you go back and you read verse 12 tonight or tomorrow, you begin to see Paul's pastoral love for the Philippians in encouraging them that it's okay to not be perfect yet. Paul himself wasn't there yet. And Paul knew it wasn't going to happen this side of eternity. And so what does Paul point to to keep himself and the Philippians from descending into despair over their struggles or wallowing in some form of self-righteous self-pity? How does Paul keep the pendulum from swinging the other way where they become their own worst critics? Notice at the end of 12, Paul says, I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Paul points the Philippians to the truth that it is Christ that has already taken hold of him. And if they're true believers, it's Christ who's already taken hold of them. What Paul wants the Philippian believers to understand clearly is that Paul is not working for acceptance. He's working out his salvation with fear and trembling from acceptance. Paul isn't working to prove his worth. Paul is working to display the worth that Christ has already put on his life. Paul marries this tension of our responsibility and God's sovereignty side by side so that they would feel the weight of what it is to begin to work out their salvation and to continue trying to obtain what was theirs And Paul says, you can keep trying and you cannot grow frustrated and you cannot become despairing in your progress because don't forget the only reason you're striving for it in the first place is because Christ has taken hold of you and made you his own. 
to live a life constantly working in, in and through the frustrations of what it means to be a Christ follower in the world around us means that we have to always be reminding ourselves that it is Christ Jesus who has made us his own. This understanding makes all the difference, all the difference, in how we process and handle all the frustrations that come with trying to live into the truth of the gospel while dealing with our own sins and the sin-stricken world around us. And Paul goes on to say this, Brothers, I do not consider that I've already made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. But those of us who are mature think this way, and if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Paul says, I'm in the struggle with you. I'm right beside you in understanding how to work this out. But Paul then quickly moves to say, but this is my one purpose in life. This is my one goal. This is my one aim. If you were to create a mission statement for your life, I don't know what yours in particular would read, but I know that as I was preparing for tonight and thinking through this, I was challenged that Paul says this, one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. This is Paul's singular purpose and passion in life. It is to put behind yesterday and use today and all that God has given him as leverage to continue pursuing the prize that is his in Christ. Paul wants to reach the goal of attaining the resurrection as he talked about at the end of verse 11 of chapter 3. This is all that Paul's life is consumed with. It's forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. There's no sense in which you begin to gather from Paul's writing that he spends a lot of time worried about what happened the day before. Paul says, I forget what lies behind, meaning not only his previous life as a Pharisee and a persecutor of the church, but he is even saying, I, I'm able to put yesterday behind me because I know that what I've got now is today. And if I'm going to be faithfully pursuing all that God has called me to be, I can't live with one foot in yesterday. Everything has to be moving forward towards striving for this goal, this prize that he so desires and what is this prize that paul is after moises silva in his commentary gives i think the best definition of the prize he says and i quote the prize is clearly the culmination of the whole work of salvation with all its implications to which god has called us that is the great hope that sustained paul even in the midst of discouragement and frustration close quote the prize was the culmination of the entirety of the gospel. And every implication it not only had for Paul's life, but for the life of the Philippian believers, for the life of the non-believers, for the life of the age to come, everything about Paul's life was striving towards this prize, which was to see Christ return and usher in the fullness of the gospel by establishing his kingdom in the new heavens and the new earth. There was no other thing that Paul thought worthy to give his life to. 
This was the one thing he did day after day after day in his ministry, in his training up leaders, in his establishing churches, in his encouraging churches. In every situation that Paul found himself, Paul's one goal and Paul's one aim was to get just one step closer to realizing the fullest implications of the gospel in his life. And he knew that that would come by either Christ returning or calling him home. And so he gave everything he had every day for the sole purpose of obtaining the prize. The fullness of the gospel is what anchored Paul's hope even as he struggled to fully live into the truths of the gospel in his daily life. However, much like in verse 12, Paul's confidence in obtaining this prize or reaching this goal isn't tied to Paul himself. It is tied into this. He says, I press on to the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. The prize is the result of the upward call of God. Paul didn't invent the prize. Paul didn't invent the way to obtain the prize. And Paul wasn't going to be the one who assured Paul that he reached the prize. Everything about what Paul is striving for is tied up in the fact that it is part of God's call on Paul's life to bring him up in the gospel until the day that he reaches the goal and obtains the prize. If the goal and the prize isn't tied to God's call on each of our lives up into the gospel, then striving after it is useless. It's a waste of our time and a waste of our effort if it's not tied into the very character of God himself. God will deliver because God cannot lie. And nothing can stop God from accomplishing his purposes. God holding out this promise of reward, of a goal, of a prize, is not Lucy holding the football for Charlie Brown. Where we're going to run up to it and then at the last minute God's taking it away. This is meant to encourage believers to stay engaged in the daily fight of what it means to live out the gospel in their life and in their cities to have an impact on the people that were around them. And so Paul says there's a goal, there's a prize, and it's tied to and it's bound up in the very character and nature of God to give this prize to his children. So keep going. Don't falter. Don't lose hope. Keep pursuing the prize and this singleness of focus this primary pursuit of the gospel prize is how according to paul mature christians should think and if anyone in the philippian congregation didn't agree paul trusted that god could and would reveal this truth to them and begin to change their minds and change their way of living he says and if anything you think otherwise god will reveal that also to you only let us hold true to what we have attained Paul says, I'm trusting that God is going to convict you that the single purpose and the single passion of your life needs to be the pursuit of the gospel in your everyday living. And you may think that there can be one or two goals or purposes in your life. You may think that there are various things you can give your life to. Paul says, you can disagree with me on this, but I'm going to trust that God's going to begin to change your mind as you seek to be faithfully obedient where you are. And so Paul says, hold true to what we have attained. Paul doesn't ask them to be where they're not. He just says, hold true to what you've attained, be faithful, be obedient, 
and trust that as you're faithfully obedient in the small things, in the little things, in the seemingly inconsequential things, God sees, God notices, and then God will give you more responsibility to help bring further clarity to the single primary purpose of your life being the pursuit of the gospel. Paul doesn't hammer them. Paul doesn't lecture them about who they need to be or who they should be by this point. Paul says, look, I struggle. I need help. I need grace. But this is what I do every day. I give the entirety of my life from the moment I wake up until I go to sleep at night. I give everything I have for the sole purpose of one day attaining the prize that has been promised me by God himself. I'm not here to debate the morality of Tiger Woods' life off the golf course. That's not what this is about. But there is something that is absolutely unheard of with Tiger Woods' career arc as a golfer, and it's this. Tiger Woods has completely changed his swing four to five times in his career. Not adjusted it, not made like a tweak. Completely overhauled every swing in his bag of tricks to break it down and to reconstitute a swing that makes it easier for him with where he is in his stage of life with how his body's responding to still be a world-class golfer. What makes this astonishing, if you go back and read golf history, there are only maybe two other people who've changed their swing once and maintained championship-level play at the highest level of the PGA Tour. Tiger has done it four to five times. And if you follow when and how he makes this change, Tiger has never once changed his swing when he was near the bottom of the world golf rankings. Tiger has never changed his swing when he was struggling to win golf tournaments. Every time Tiger has changed his swing, he has been near or at the very top of his game. But what Tiger can see that none of us can see because I would love to just be able to play golf like he does for one round of 18 holes. But what I see as a goal that I could never attain, as a golf swing that is one of the most pure in the world, when Tiger Woods looks at it, all he can see are flaws. And so he works to change and to change again and to change again. All for the fleeting pleasure of winning PGA tournaments and majors but I think that's part of what Paul's after here with the Philippians it'd be easy for the Philippians to look and go man Paul's got it Paul's got it made he doesn't have to work at this anymore why would he he's the super apostle he's got it all together and Paul says you can look at me however you want but I'm never going to be satisfied I'm going to have a holy discontent with where my life is And I'm always going to be pushing myself to attain a little more fuller, a little more full understanding of what the gospel means for me. So I think the same has to be true for us. Where where are we looking at our lives, taking honest assessment and going, I may feel like I've arrived here, but where are the other areas of my walk with Christ that need to be worked on, that need to be refined, that need to be brought more in line with Scripture? That's a healthy thing. It's a scary thing because we're all really good at convincing ourselves just how far along down the path we are. But if we're honest in light of the scriptures to begin to take note of such things, I believe, like Paul, we'll find we haven't arrived. 
but we've got work to do to continue straining forward towards the goal. Then Paul says in 17, brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I've often told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. In 17, Paul pleads with the Philippians to begin to imitate him and his example of passionate, faithful obedience. You can read that and be like, man, Paul was a real arrogant jerk. Like I would never, ever be bold enough to tell somebody, hey, you can imitate my life because that's a pretty good indication of Christian living. But here's why that's not braggadocious, but it's very humble because of everything Paul said just ahead of it. He's not advocating for disciples of Paul to arise. He's advocating for fully developed disciples of Jesus to be built up. And Paul models that by saying, I've not arrived and I'm not perfect. I'm still relying on this grace, on the grace of Jesus every day in my own life. When Paul invites the Philippian believers to imitate him, he's not inviting them to imitate Paul at his best. He's inviting them to imitate Paul as he, as aware of his weakness, throws himself daily on the mercy and the grace of Christ to work in his life, to bring strength where Paul is weak and to display the power and the beauty and the worth of the gospel in their own life. That's why Paul can say, be imitators of me. Because Paul's goal was to be a good imitator of Jesus. And I think we read that as prideful because we go, I really want people to be good imitators of me. Paul says, I don't care if you imitate me only to the degree that I imitate Christ. That's all Paul is after. Not only was Paul worth emulating, but there were others around Philippi and the surrounding area who were also worthy of being watched and imitated. I mean, think just before when he had said that he wasn't going to be able to send Timothy to them as they had hoped, but he was going to send Epaphroditus. There are two other examples in this letter that Paul mentions who are worthy of being emulated, who are worthy of being followed. And so Paul says this isn't just for those of us who have book deals. This isn't just for those of us who have verified Twitter accounts. There are a lot of faithful men and women that you would do well to imitate if you will just look around at those you worship beside weekly. See those men and women who are faithfully living to imitate Christ in all of their life, throwing themselves daily on the grace and mercy of Christ to be profoundly worked out through their weaknesses and follow them. Paul did not want to th- didn't want the Philippians to think that this way of living that Paul's advocating for was only reserved for those who were somewhere other than where the Philippians were. Paul wanted them to know and see that everyone who had experienced the life-changing truth of the gospel was capable of living the life Paul was calling them to. But there were some, Paul says, who were not worthy of imitation. Paul, with tears gathering at the corner of his eyes as he remembers them, says that these people who are not worth imitating have chosen to live as enemies of 
the cross. But Paul isn't angry like he was with the false teachers in Galatia. Like if you flip over and read Galatians, that's mad Paul. That's ticked off Paul. Here, Paul, there's no sense of vindictiveness. He says it meant through tears. I'm telling you that these people aren't worth following. The Philippian believers would have known who, this, who these people were. And the best that you can probably piece together, we can piece together, is it is people who hung out around the church, maybe knew all the right things to say, they knew the lingo, they knew what to wear, they knew when to be where, they knew how to give the appearance of being a believer. But when the cost of the gospel began to escalate, when the demands of the gospel began to become an inconvenience on their life, they bailed on the gospel and it broke Paul's heart. You get the sense that Paul's only going to cry over people that he had invested in and cared for and who he thought upon leaving Philippi were committed believers to the gospel and the cross of Christ who have only in the intervening years turned out to be those who, as he says, their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things got to imagine that wasn't easy for Paul to write. D.A. Carson provides clarity on these enemies of the cross when he says this as far as describing these people. Far from being, and I quote, far from being drawn to suffering for Christ's sake, they are endlessly drawn to creature comforts. They please themselves. Their God is located no higher than their belly. The kinds of things they really value, far from being inspiring and glorious and worthy of emulation, are downright shameful. They are to be pitied because all of their values and cherished goals are tied to what belongs to this world and this earth. And no part of them breathes with, breathes with the passion of Paul, who wanted somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead. Close quote. These enemies of the cross were those who wrongly thought that self-comfort could and would always trump the self-sacrifice that the gospel calls us to. When the gospel pressed in on their finances, they chose comfort over Christ. When the gospel began to change their social standing, they chose comfort over Christ. When the gospel challenged their business practices, they chose comfort over Christ. When the gospel caused their lives to be threatened, they chose comfort over Christ. And so it is that we still deal with the subtle and not-so-subtle ways that we have to daily choose between comfort and Christ. The enemies of the cross, the ones whose end was destruction, were those who walked right up to a point where there was a clear choice to be made between obedience to the gospel and disobedience, and time and time and time again, with no sense of wrongdoing, they chose disobedience. And from the outside, a heart that had appeared to be tenderized and changed by the gospel was instead hardened over time as disobedience ran its course. And those who at one point would have stand and perhaps lifted their hands in worship together with the other Philippian believers have now become those who cannot hear and cannot see and cannot respond to the truth of the gospel. Because at every point when they were given an opportunity, they chose themselves. Paul says, these are the ones you are not to imitate. And then Paul does something again. And, and if you read this all as one letter, sometimes you just read and you're like, why does he do this here? Like, I don't understand. 
You would expect Paul to maybe give you some more list of things to avoid. You'd expect maybe Paul to go maybe single out a few Philippian believers who are struggling with their God being in their belly. But this is what Paul does. He seems to almost change the conversation mid-sentence, but he says this in 20, but our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Paul closes out this section by articulating a clear picture of the hope of the gospel. And it makes sense, right? Like, Paul doesn't waste words. Paul's very direct and very clear. Emulate us, don't emulate these people who are only, whose minds are only set on earthly things. Remember where your citizenship is. Because where your citizenship is determines what your heart and your mind are set on. And so it seems kind of awkward at first, but Paul is just giving the stark contrast of the exact opposite of those whose end is destruction. By painting a picture of those whose end is life. And he just gives such a clear, succinct picture of the gospel hope. Paul doesn't want the Philippians to place their hope in him. He's told us that much throughout the letter. What Paul wants them to do is to live their life with the ever-present reality that Christ is going to return. This is where our hope, our hope is not only caught up in the empty cross and the empty tomb, our hope is also bound up in the promise of Christ to return. D.A. Carson says, Paul insists in the strongest terms that genuine Christianity, the kind that he wants imitated, lives in light of Jesus' return. So did you live today in light of Jesus' return? Well, that's a tough question to ask. Paul says that's the only real life worth imitating is finding people who allow there to be this hope-filled urgency with the way that they live their life. I didn't live today in light of Jesus returning. I kind of wished he would this morning because I didn't have a lot of this sermon done. I was like, hey, if you, I'm good with it now. If you want to come on, come on, I'm good. And I'll admit, look, some of this whole developing and being able to articulate our hope has been hijacked by really dumb end times movies. Looking at you, Kirk Cameron, and Left Behind. But there's something to what Paul's doing here, and it's something we struggle with. We struggle to be good articulators of the hope that we have. And so we preach the gospel to ourselves. We, we share the gospel with others. But does the way we share the gospel with ourselves and with others, is it infused with any sense of hope? Is it infused with any sense of it's hope enough to make me change the way I'm going to go about my day today? That's what Paul says we should be after. 
Paul knows that laying hold of the truths of the gospel, straining towards the prize, imitating himself and others, all finds its forward momentum in the promise that Christ is coming back to finally and fully usher in the kingdom of God. Moises Silva, in his commentary around these verses, says this, and I quote, The focus, in other words, is not some abstract hope, but the person of Jesus Christ himself, whom Paul is resolved to know. We await this Lord because it is he who will transform our bodies. It is his glorious body that becomes the pattern for ours, and it is his sovereign power that lends certainty to our hope. The point, quite clearly, is that Christ's great eschatological power, that power that abolishes all earthly authority, making all enemies, even death, a footstool, assures the fulfillment of his promise. Nothing can thwart God's saving purposes. What he has begun he will bring to completion, close quote. Paul knew that if the Philippians then and us today didn't live in light of Christ's return, then we would inevitably be lulled into folding our hands and taking a passive stance as it regards the gospel, its work in our own lives, and its continuing spread throughout the world. We would latch on to, if we do not live with some sense of gospel-filled hope and urgency, we will latch on to a thousand peripheral things to make or break our understanding of what it means to be a follower of Christ. Paul says the life worth imitating, the, the life worth being repeated over and over again is one that keeps the gospel and the promise of Christ's return front and center as its energizing hope. It's energizing push forward. To live in light of the imminent return of Christ is to live with hope-filled urgency. Again, I picked a lot of bad examples maybe for this. I'm not telling you that you should or shouldn't watch Billy Madison. I'll leave that up to you. It is a reminder that Adam Sandler used to be genuinely funny. At the end of Billy Madison, they're in this academic decathlon and the last event is they have to answer a question from this board of questions. And so the topic or the, the um, heading that Billy Madison has to answer is reflections of society and literature. And so the principal asks him a question about how the Industrial Revolution has changed the face of the novel. Cite, uh, explain your answer, and give examples. And so in the movie, Billy Madison goes on this long rambling discussion about this book called The Puppy Who Lost Its Way, and it is the most mind-numbing two minutes of film. You kind of you kind of pan out to the crowd, and people aren't really following. And then at the end, this is what he does. He just screams out nib-high football rules, and the whole place goes crazy. Like, he didn't ever really answer the question, and the principal has like a a fantastic insult when he's done about how they're all dumber for having listened and may God have mercy on his soul. But here's why I bring that up. The same way that Billy Madison struggled to answer a question about the reflections of society and literature, man, do we not struggle to articulate our hope? Do we not just give long, meandering answers that have no real sense of the full implications of the gospel? And we don't just get to the end and then scream out something about God loves you. Like, oh, and this is, Jesus loves you. And like that, like we do the same thing he does in that. We give long meandering answers 
that have nothing to do with the hope we really have. And then at the end, we just inject something that we know would get a response. And I think one of the things we've got to work on is being good readers and, understand, and understanders, that's not a word, being good at reading and understanding and applying the scriptures, not just the New Testament, but from Genesis to Revelation to understand the full arc of all that the Bible is telling us about the gospel, about the promises of God, about the work of redemption, about the sending of Christ, about the coming of Christ and his life and his death and his resurrection and his ascension and his promised return. And we've got to get good at being those who can articulate hope in everything that we do. And especially when it comes to how we share the gospel with other people. And when we begin to understand more clearly the hope that is ours from Scripture, it won't be long until you find that there's a certain sense of urgency present in your life that wasn't present before. Because you're beginning to understand, you're beginning to put the pieces together, you're beginning to see how your story right here, right now, at the tail end of 2018 in Wilmington, North Carolina, fits into the grand picture of what God has been doing from the beginning of time. And you realize nothing you are doing is hopeless. Everything you do as a follower of Christ is hope-filled. So as we come to a time of response tonight, I just want to ask you a few questions to prayerfully consider. Do you feel like you've arrived spiritually to the point that you think there's not a lot left for you to attain the side of the grave? Or are you pressing on and striving to make Christ your own? Are you striving daily for the prize of the gospel? Are you one that Paul could point to as living a life worth imitating? Or are you one who is dangerously close to living as an enemy of the cross? Do you live your life in light of Christ's return with all of the hope that it brings? And if you don't, if you don't live in light of Christ's return and its hope, do you find that this lack of hope makes it hard for you to stand firm? Because that's what Paul says in 4.1 giving them hope. He says, Therefore, my brothers whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. When we rightly understand the hope that is ours in the gospel, we find it easier to stand firm when everything around us seems to be breaking down. Let's pray.